Well, how are you feeling about the Advent season? Are you excited? Are you still not quite there? The church looks great. It looks very festive. Thankful for all who, who decorated. Um, have you been watching Hallmark Christmas movies yet? Some of you have not stopped watching them from, from last year. They're, they're on continuously. I think there's a special channel. There's just Christmas movies all the time. Do you remember that, that movie about a young woman, a businesswoman from the big city that was just due for a promotion? She was in a relationship with the wrong guy. Um, and then she decided to go back home to her hometown, and she rekindled the old flame. There was that almost kiss under the mistletoe, and the bacon competition that she won, and then finally resulting in this grand royal wedding prominently featuring a gazebo. Are you familiar with that? That's every movie, right? <laughs> Her name was Holly or Noel or something like that, I think. Well, we're going to be talking about a story as well. Um, this Advent season, I think a better story, though you will find some of the same elements that made their way into the Hallmark movies as well. This Advent, we're going to be looking at Christ's birth from Mary's eyes. So we're going to be looking at some of the very familiar scriptures to you from the Gospel of Luke, and yet we're going to take a very specific angle. We're going to be looking at all of what happened through the eyes of Mary and examine her emotions and her ambitions and her fears and insecurities and and how she felt and what she thought, all of that, we're going to be looking in the next uh, four Sundays. So that's my plan, and today we're going to be looking at the announcement that the angel Gabriel brings to Mary, announcing that she will give birth to Jesus. So if you would stand with me, if you're able, and we will affirm our trust in God's Word, and then I will read our passage so let's say this together. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please remain standing if, if you're able. I'm going to read from Luke. Uh, this is chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, and uh, it's found in your Black Pew Bible on page 855. 855, if you don't have a Bible of your own, please take the one you have in front of you and take it home and use it. We'd love for you to have your own copy of Scripture at home. So please follow along Luke one twenty six. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be born, child to be born will be called holy, 
the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who, has, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is God's word. You may be seated. The main idea I'd like to focus on today is this. True faith, real faith, is rooted in and shaped by our experience of God's grace through Christ. True faith is rooted in and shaped by our experience of God's grace through Christ. We'll explore how God's favor or God's grace produced a certain kind of faith in Mary. So we'll be looking at her faith, but of course it's the same kind of faith that we need to cultivate in our own lives. So just two points in my outline, God's favor and our faith. God's favor and our, our faith. So when the angel comes to Mary, he says, greeting, O favored one, the Lord is with you. So that's the initial announcement that God has favored Mary, that God is favorable to her, that God is kind to her, that he has chosen her. Mary, of course, like, by the way, everyone else in Scripture, when encountering an angel, she's scared. She's greatly troubled. She doesn't know how to react to this. She's trying to figure out. She's processing everything that's happening. And so the angel then reaffirms God's favor to her. And he says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, this word translated favor here just for clarity's sake, is the same word that's all over the New Testament and is usually translated grace. Same word. So in Ephesians 2, for example, familiar verse, Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. By grace is the same word that's used here in Luke. So I want us to see that God is dealing with with Mary by grace. In other words, God's choice of this woman to to bear the Son of God into the world is not based on Mary's superior qualities, but on God's grace, on his sovereign choice, on his favor and kindness towards her. God's plans for Mary are not based on how well-suited and equipped and prepared she was to accomplish them, but on God's grace. This announcement, by the way, comes as a complete surprise to Mary. She's not waiting for this. She's not training for this. She is troubled by it when it comes. Now try to put yourself in Mary's situation. Here's this young woman in Galilee, not exactly the center of cultural and religious life, of the time. She's just starting her life as an adult. She's betrothed, uh, which is kind of like being engaged, except it's probably a higher standard. And being betrothed meant almost married. Marriage was still to be celebrated and consummated, but the commitment is already there. And so she's starting her life as an adult. She's betrothed to Joseph, this local carpenter. And then an angel tells her. Now imagine 
yourself as Mary, and then imagine what you're hearing from the angel. This is what the angel says, verses 31 through 33. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Okay. You shall call his name Jesus. All right, common name. And then it gets really, really crazy. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The angel is saying, you're going to give birth to a baby who's going to be God's son. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And this baby will grow up to rule like David, like the David of old, like the great king of Israel. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So this baby will be God and will rule and will be ruling in eternity and will fulfill all these promises and longings of God's people. So here's this essentially kid, right? Probably a teenager that is just living her life, getting ready for marriage and, and having children of her own and doing all that people did at that time. And an angel comes and says, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to give birth to God. And this God will be a king and he will rule forever and he will fulfill all these promises that God has made to his people. This is an incredible promise. Mary, you will give birth to the Messiah we've been waiting for all these years. Now, I think Mary is not given a list of excuses for why she can't do it like Moses. You remember Moses had a list when he was favored, when he was chosen by God for a particular mission. Mary's not given the angel any excuses, I think because in her mind, this, this choice of her as the mother of this king is so obviously based on grace, there's no qualifications that need to be discussed. It is so surprising to her, it is, it is so gracious on God's part that she has really nothing to say as an objection to that. Here's this angel announcing God's plan for her to give birth to the Messiah. What excuses could she have when she was chosen by grace? Now, I think this passage is so clear on that. And yet, and that's why it's surprising to me that this very passage of Scripture is used by some traditions to show that Mary, as a person, is superior to all other human beings. There are some Christian traditions that rationalize and justify God's choice of Mary based on her merits, based on her accomplishments. In fact, there are some that believe that she was sinless. She had no sin. She was conceived without sin. She lived her life perfectly. And that's why God chose her, because she was special in that way. She had no sin like other human beings. Some believe that she herself is a source of grace to other people. Many people today regularly and fervently pray to Mary and pray for her help. And this is not a time for me to point out particular religious traditions. This is not a time for me to bash anybody's beliefs. But I do want to point out what Scripture tells us about Mary. And Scripture tells us that she is full of grace, she is full of favor because God filled her with grace and favor. 
She's not herself a source of that. She's not full of grace as if overflowing with grace from herself. But she is a recipient of grace. Here's this teenager, right, living her life. God comes and says, you are highly favored. You are, you've been chosen. You've been given this mission. You will do this as part of God's plan of redemption. God decided that for her. It wasn't because she was extra special. It wasn't because she was sinless. It wasn't because she herself was a fountain of grace. And yet many people today, maybe at this very minute, are praying, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. This is from our text, right? This is exactly from Scripture, but then it gets, that prayer gets weird. Blessed are thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus Okay, that's still okay. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. It's interesting that Scripture, right, is pulled out and is used and is put together and packaged, and yet the meaning of this prayer is utterly unbiblical. I don't know how we get from here, from Luke's account of the story, to let's pray to Mary because she has a source of grace for us. She can help us. Mary is full of grace because grace has been shown to her by God, not because she has it within herself. Mary does exhibit some remarkable qualities specifically connected to her faith, which we'll be looking at in just a minute. But these qualities are typical of all Christians, all those who have been affected by God's grace. So to exalt Mary to the level that she has been exalted in some Christian traditions, and I come from a culture, from the Eastern Orthodox culture, that has the same tendencies. To exalt Mary to the level that she has been exalted in some traditions is utterly inconsistent with how the Bible describes her. Now listen to one commentator. It must be emphasized that God's choice of Mary... To bear this child springs from his grace, not from any inherent merit that she possesses. She is the object of God's unmerited, graciously provided goodness. Her description as one who has found favor with God makes it clear that God has acted on her behalf and not because of her. In fact, Mary is totally perplexed by this sudden announcement. She did not ask for or seek this role in God's plans. God has simply stepped into her life and brought her into his service. Her asset is that she is faithful. She should be honored for her model of faithfulness and openness to serve God. But that does not mean she is to be worshipped. Luke wants us to identify with Mary's example, not to unduly exalt her person. I think this is exactly right. As you read the Bible, the portrait of Mary you see is not the Mary that we see in popular religion of of today. And the question is why, and how did that happen? How did that happen that people who read the Bible in some way or have the Bible as part of their tradition, right, end up praying to Mary? How does that happen? Because it could happen to any of us if it's happened to many Christians over the years. Well, I think there are at least two reasons for how it happened. One, they're simply not as familiar with the Bible's portrayal of Mary as they should be. Marian worship is prevalent in traditions where the Bible is not widely read, 
and is not regularly preached. There is a connection, of course. People who typically recite prayers to Mary are rarely found with their Bibles open reading about Mary from God's Word. And there's a connection because Scripture is so clear on who Mary is and what happened to her and the grace of God that came into her life that as you read it, it's impossible to start praying to her. But if you don't read it, you're going to rely on other sources. You're going to rely on other advice and traditions. And so you may end up praying to her. That's one reason. But the second reason is that we are all uncomfortable with grace. And this is where, you know, of the past five minutes, you could say, well, he's talking about someone else, you know, some other religious people somewhere else. Let me bring the focus back on us. Because all of us, Catholic, Protestant, or Orthodox, we're all uncomfortable with grace. We would rather find a reason why God chose Mary and why he chooses us than accept that we bring nothing to the table when we deal with God. Isn't that true? Isn't that true that when you read these stories of people that God used greatly, the temptation is to say, well, what was it about them that moved God to use them in this way? And maybe I can emulate those qualities, and maybe I can conjure up this kind of merit, this kind of aspect in my life that would then move God to choose me too. It's easier to justify and to rationalize God's choices and say he must have had a reason. There was something about that person. There was something about that situation. than say God just does what he wills. And when he chooses people, he chooses them by grace. When he saves people, he saves not just good people that are almost saved, and he just kind of pushes them a little bit, but he takes any sinner and transforms them and changes them, and chooses them, and blesses them, regardless of who they are and what they've done. Many of us are uncomfortable with grace. Now, and I know for us here, we proclaim our our faith in this doctrine that we are saved by grace alone. We talk about it all the time. And yet, I bet many of us, if not all of us, are struggling with that. It's hard for us to say, the reason I'm a Christian does not lie in me. The reason I'm a Christian is because God made me a Christian. And there's nothing else to say about that. So let me push you a little bit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean into this a little bit because I really want us to wrestle with that. Do you believe that God is dealing with you by grace? And I mean completely by grace, completely by grace. Do you believe that? And not just do you affirm that, but do you functionally believe that? Do you trust that? Does your life reflect that? We're like Mary in many ways. Salvation also comes to us through an announcement. We too have been chosen by God to be in his kingdom, if you're a believer. Jesus appears in our lives too. And the question has to be asked, why us? Why me? Why did the gospel come to me? and not to my neighbor, and not to my brother, and not to my parents, and not to my co-worker. Can you accept that it is completely by grace that there's nothing inherently good in you that determines God's choice of you? 
Can you accept that you do not deserve God's even notice in your existence? Can you accept that you have not merited any of His blessings, that all of that is by grace? You know, many of us would say, some of it is by grace, certainly. No, nobody here thinks we're perfect and God has to save us and God has to love us. I mean, we're smart enough to look at our lives and say, yeah, there's issues. I have problems. I have not done well in that relationship. And I made a bad choice there. And I made a deliberate action there that is sinful. I mean, we, we should all be able to say that if we're just honest with ourselves. But so many of us believe that it's just a fraction of my life that's bad. And if God can only fix that fraction of my life, then I'd be fine. But I kind of have a lot going for me to begin with. And it makes sense that God would choose me. It makes sense that, that he would bless me with entrance into his kingdom and a relationship with him. Is that how you feel? You don't have to say it, okay? But is that how you feel? Are you wrestling with these issues? I think this is why so many believers look at Mary and say, well, maybe she can help us. Maybe she's special in some way. Maybe we go to her, because if we deal with God directly, what do you have to bring to him? And if you think long enough about that and you process that and you emotionally really engage with some of these insecurities we feel, we have to say if there's a way for us to be with God, if there's a way for us to have peace with him and a relationship with him, it has to be by grace. And it has to be completely by grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Now I'm going to work out now how this grace plays out in our faith. And that's really what I want us to get. I needed to lay the foundation and maybe say some things you already know. But now we're going to work it out and see how Mary's faith actually reflects her experience of grace. And the kind of faith she has can only be explained by her experience of grace, which is every Christian's faith, I think. Now, it's interesting that with all the Mary worship that we have now, Jesus himself rejects that. Now, maybe he knew this was going to happen, I don't know. But it happened, almost happened in his time. Luke 11, and this is going to lead to her faith, this is connected. Luke eleven twenty seven and 28. Jesus does amazing things, he says amazing things, and after he says some amazing things, a woman in the crowd raises her voice and says to him, so she's speaking to Jesus, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. This is probably the earliest example of Marian worship. Somebody looks at Jesus and says, you're great. Your mom must have been remarkable. <laughs> blessed be the woman that bore you. And it's interesting how Jesus reacts to that. What does he point to? What does he want us to know about Mary? What does he want us to focus on? Does he want us to focus on the specialness of Mary and go to her so she could talk to Jesus to help us? No. Look at what he says, verse 28. He says, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. He says, You think Mary is remarkable? She's remarkable because she heard the word and responded to it in faith. Just like you, you should hear the word and respond to it by faith. You shouldn't go to Mary to worship her, but you should look at her example and say, 
how did grace come into her life and what did she do with it? How did she respond to that? She responded in faith, she heard the word, and she kept it. Well, that's a call to all of us. It makes all of us on the same playing field. We're all on the same level like Mary. Grace comes to us. What do we do with it? We respond by faith. So let's look at these three qualities of Mary's faith. Faith that is necessarily connected to her experience of grace. Number one, it's a curious faith. Mary's faith is a curious faith. It's inquisitive. Look at verse 34. This is after the big announcement, after the angel tells her, don't don't be scared. Mary says to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? How will this be? She goes from fear and being troubled to now asking questions. She wants to know how God is going to do this. This is not an expression of doubt for her. You know, we saw Zechariah was another example. That was doubt. Mary is not doubt. It's wonder. She's, she's hearing this announcement, and her question is, God, how are you going to do this? She wants to know. She's excited. Her, her mind is just, just captured by, by wonder. The way Luke describes Mary in other passages, she is a, a deep thinker. She ponders and she treasures her observations, ponders them in her heart. She processes her perception of God's grace in poetry. She writes a song. She loves to ask questions. It's one of the qualities of her faith. And since I told you that this kind of faith, this kind of curious faith is rooted and shaped by grace, let's ask the question, how does theological curiosity relate to grace? There are many Christians that are afraid to ask questions. In fact, there are some churches that teach don't ask any questions, right? Just believe. Shut your eyes. Believe what we're telling you, and you'll be fine. Don't ask questions. Don't go to college. Don't read books. Just believe. Just stay with it. Just believe. But when you read Scripture... God always welcomes questions. That's not actually how God operates. God even entertains some really silly questions we ask and seems to be okay with that. It seems that God is encouraging us to explore and to even speculate in some ways, but certainly to ask Him questions. Now, we're afraid to ask them often because we don't know what the answers are going to be. I think that's really the reason. You grew up in the church, for example, you've been taught a certain way, maybe you've been catechized and you've memorized the Westminster Confession of Faith, and you feel like, if I just step out of this just for a second, if I ask the wrong question, I'm going to discover that this whole thing is a house of cards, and it's just all going to tumble down, and what am I going to do then? I think there's a lot of people, there may be some people here at church today, that are thinking, I better not ask any questions. Because I don't know what the answers are going to be. And maybe I'm not going to like the answers to my questions. And so you just kind of keep quiet. That's not Mary's faith. Mary's faith is very curious. And I think the reason is because she has experienced God's grace. Now imagine if you were already confident in your relationship with God. 
because it has been established by grace. If you are already convinced that this God is real, that he is good, that he is committed to you, all these things come to us by grace, then you can explore him as much as you want. Ask any question you want. Because there's no fear to find something you don't expect and all of a sudden to realize God is not the way I thought he was. If God is who he says he is and if grace is how he deals with us, we don't need to be afraid to explore because all we're going to find is more grace and a more wonderful God. Isn't that freeing? Is it freeing to you? I want this to be freeing. If you're wrestling, you're thinking, I don't want to ask any questions. I want you to start asking questions. Because if you have experienced his grace and your relationship with him is settled, it's good because it doesn't depend on you. It doesn't even depend on how well you ask or answer questions. And if that's true, if he is a God of grace, you know what? Have a good time and explore. Ask questions. Ask even irreverent questions sometimes. God doesn't seem to be put off by that. He wants to tell you more about himself. He welcomes an inquisitive mind. He welcomes curiosity. Now, this is not inventive curiosity. This is not, uh, we're not innovating. We're, We're exploring what already exists. We're going into the depths of God to learn more about him and his grace. Let me give you an example that hopefully clarifies what I mean and also makes you chuckle a little bit. Are you familiar with the great franchise Curious George? Many books, many languages. I had to look it up, and I realized, man, there's like almost every country in the world has a translation of of Curious George. Of course, there are movies. There's the PBS cartoons. It's everywhere. Go to Walmart. You can get Curious George pajamas. Do whatever you want with that. Now, if you're not familiar with the stories, it's always the same story. It's almost like a Hallmark Christmas movie. It's exactly the same plot. You have this monkey, Curious George. He's very curious. And he always gets into all sorts of trouble, all sorts of monkey business that he gets into. And he has a friend, the man with the yellow hat. And the man with the yellow hat is, is sort of his guardian, I guess, his friend. He brought him from somewhere, and he lives with him in this big, big city. And the plot is always the same. George's well-intentioned tomfoolery gets him into all sorts of stuff, and yet, at the end of every episode, at the end of every book, at the end of every movie, the man with the yellow hat comes and rescues George, and somehow whatever George was doing turns out to be beneficial and great for everybody involved. That is the plot of every story. At the end of every adventure, there is the open embrace of the man with the yellow hat. And so there is safety for George. You don't need to wonder how this story is going to end. We know every story is going to end with the man with the yellow hat coming to his rescue. There's no fear in George's life. He does all these weird things because he's kind of a fun monkey. I mean, it just comes from a good heart. But there's no fear. There's no real danger in his life because he knows 
at the end of the day, his friend, the man with the yellow hat, is going to be there. And it's all going to be okay. His experience of his relationship with his friend, you see, it colors his life. And somehow he's free to do all these things, knowing that somehow everything is going to turn out to be okay. Now let's apply this. Is your faith a curious faith? Are you asking questions? Are you pondering and treasuring and thinking and exploring like Mary? And it has to happen in this book because this is our source of God, who he is, his grace, his stories, his character. Are you in the Bible? Are you reading the scriptures regularly, carefully, attentively, studying them, memorizing them, learning how they fit together, processing your theology through the lens of God's word, looking at Mary in scripture? Are you doing that? Is that a pattern of your life? Because if grace has affected you deeply, your faith is going to be curious and it's going to lead you to his word. Number two, Mary's faith is a growing faith. It's an ever-growing faith. It's developing. Look at verses 35 through 37. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So that's the response to her question, how will this be? Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And this is the key phrase, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. So her question, how is this going to happen? The answer is, God is going to do it. This is how. And by the way, nothing is off limits here. God can do anything. So as Mary was exploring God and his grace, she realized that he's even bigger than she knew. She asked about a virgin giving birth to a child, but she ended up discovering that nothing will be impossible with God. I wonder what she was thinking as she heard it. Was she thinking if God can make a virgin give birth and nothing is impossible with God, what else is she going to do? That's kind of how I see Mary. I see a little sparkle in her eye saying, okay, you're going to do this incredible, amazing thing I'm still trying to wrap my, my head around, but nothing is impossible with you. What else are you going to do? What else am I going to believe? And in the course of our life, we know there's a lot of incredible things that happened with Jesus. In the course of her life, she came to believe that the righteousness of God can be crammed into the human being, Jesus, lived out under the law, and then somehow transferred to other people. That's a miracle. That somehow Jesus can live a perfect life on our behalf. And then we can have that same righteousness through him. She came to believe that. She came to believe that, that Jesus was the Lamb of God who came to be sacrificed as, as a sin offering for us. And through his death, through that bloody death on the cross, and Mary was there, and she, she, she came to believe that through that, our guilt is removed. 
That on the cross, not only the Roman Empire was punishing Jesus, not only the religious authorities were punishing Jesus, but God was punishing him. She came to believe that God's wrath was poured out on his son, on her boy. And somehow through that, we are not under his wrath anymore. She discovered that death could not hold God from loving us. And Jesus rose again. And she got to believe that through that resurrection, we're given a new life. And this is an incredible life. And that we can live in his kingdom now. And yet, she came to believe that there's a promise that he will return. And when he returns, he will renew the world. And we'll be in this renewed world under his eternal kingship forever. Those are discoveries of her faith as she grew in her walk with God. She didn't start out there. I mean, she started out in a pretty cool place, but there were more things for her to learn and believe. There were more things for her to discover. Now, how does that relate to grace? What is the grace source of this kind of faith? Let me put it this way. The reality of our full acceptance with God by grace holds the promise of an ever-deepening relationship with Him. The reality of our full acceptance with God by grace holds the promise of an ever-deepening relationship with Him. The more we grow in our relationship with God, the greater our faith will be. Grace demands that our faith develops, deepens, and grows. There's a dynamic quality to the true Christian faith because it's rooted in grace. Grace frees it up to grow. There's a place in one of the Narnia stories. Who read Narnia as, as kids or adults? Okay, so good audience. There, there's, a, there's a place in one of the Narnia stories where Lucy, one of, one of the char- main characters, meets Aslan, who's, who's the Christ figure in the books. And she and her friends had not seen him for a long time, and so she meets him again, and she says to him, you're bigger. Aslan answers, that's because you're older. And she says, not because you are. He says, I'm not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. That's that's our faith. Every year we grow, every moment that we grow and get to know God better, our faith will grow. We will discover new things. We will discover new depths in God. And as we're exploring through our curious faith, we will see our faith get stronger and fuller. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And my final point, Mary's faith is a humble faith. Look at verse 38 with me. Mary said, after all that revelation, all that announcement, her question answered, he sa- she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Having experienced grace, what else can we do but say, I'm your servant. Do with me whatever you want, God. J.C. Ryle comments, Let us seek in our daily practical Christianity to exercise the same blessed spirit of faith which we see here in the Virgin Mary. Let us be willing to go anywhere and do anything 
and be anything, whatever be the present and immediate inconvenience, so long as God's will is clear and the path of duty is plain. That's the spirit of Mary. That's her faith. It's a humble faith. It's a faith that comes out of grace, right? So if you experience God's grace, what else can you do but say, okay, I am your servant. I'm going to go wherever you tell me to go. I'm going to be whatever you tell me to be. I'm going to do whatever you ask me to do. I'm all in. You see, if your relationship with God is based on a contract, if conditions have been determined, if God said, this is what I'm doing for you, and in return, this is what you're doing for me, then there are limits to what he can ask of us. Of course there are. And the limits are determined by that agreement. If God says, I will only do this much for you and no more, but I'm only requiring you to do this much for me and no more. So if he comes to you with a crazy idea, you can easily say, yeah, but that's not our agreement. That's not supposed to happen in my life because, you know, we had a deal. I do this and you do that. And many people feel that way. My deal with God is I show up to church. I'm pretty consistent. And God will keep me healthy. That's my deal with God. He will do that, I will do that. If one of us breaks that, then the other thing is, is off. If I get sick, I don't have to go to church. If I don't go to church and I get sick, I have nothing to complain about because that was the deal. There are so many people who think of God in those terms, of saying there's a contract, there's a deal. But that's not grace. And the way Mary experiences God, the way we experience God in Christ is built completely on grace, which means that God comes to you and does everything for you with no basis at all to choose you or to love you or to save you, which means that he can ask you to do anything. There are simply no limits, and we must humbly accept whatever he asks of us. In the early Christian art, and you can, you can Google that, it's, it's, there's amazing... They later became icons, but we see them in the, the catacombs, the early Christian art. Um, we see this, this figure of a woman, and she's standing like this. Her arms raised, and her palms of her hands are turned upward. And it's, I think it started with a picture of Mary, and it became a symbol of the church. It became a posture of prayer and, and humble acceptance of God's will. I think that's the best visual for this verse. What Mary is saying, I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word, right? And that becomes what the posture of the church is. And so when you sing and you raise your hands, you may do it for a variety of reasons, but maybe you will do it for this reason. As you sing and praise God, you raise your hands and you say, God, I'm here. And because of your grace, there are no limits on what you may ask me to do. And so I'm humbly submitting to you and I'm saying, I'm your servant. Ask whatever you want, do whatever you want with me, let it be to me according to your word. I'll finish with this quote from Chesterton, and then we'll come to communion. G.K. Chesterton talks about humility as an active thing. In fact, he credits humility uh, as, as the source of this great expansion of the Western civilization. He sees Christendom as really rooted in Christian humility. And you may argue with that or not, that's fine. But there's a connection between our humble submission to God's will and the kind of crazy big things that a person or a church or a nation 
can accomplish. This is how Chesterton puts it. The whole secret of the practical success of Christendom lies in Christian humility, however imperfectly fulfilled. For with the removal of all question of merit or payment, the soul is suddenly released for incredible voyages. If we ask a sane man how much he merits, his mind shrinks instinctively and instantaneously. It is doubtful whether he merits six feet of earth. But if you ask him what he can conquer, he can conquer the stars. Chesterton, as he often does, puts it just completely on its head. And he says, if you tell some, ask somebody, what do you deserve? What can you earn? What can you achieve in your own strength? We would, we would limit it. But if you ask somebody, if there's no question of merit or payment or earning, take it off the table. What can you do? What can you conquer? We would say, I can conquer the stars. And that is the spirit of the Christian. We come humbly to the Lord and we say, do whatever you want with us. Because none of what I'm doing for you is earning your acceptance, which I already have. None of it is placing me in a better position with you. I am simply a servant ready to do whatever you want for me. And sometimes God asks us to do big and bold things. Who knows what God can do through you? Who knows what God can do through us, through our church? And as you think about it, remember Mary, this teenager who heard this crazy announcement from the angel. And she said, you want me to give birth to God. Let's go. Let's do it. Arms raised, palms turned upward. I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. That's our posture. We're going to come to the table, and as you come to the table, I'd like you to be keep thinking about your faith and how it's shaped by the experience of grace in Christ. Is your faith curious? Are you exploring the depth of God? Is your faith growing? Are you stronger today in your faith and understanding and relationship with God than you were a year ago, last Advent season? And is your faith actively humble? Are you ready for God to call on you and ask you to do something big or small for his glory? Come to the table and have your faith shaped by God's grace in Jesus. Come and see his grace on this table. You too are favored. You too are in Christ. If you're not a believer, if that experience of grace hasn't happened to you, if you are seeing your relationship with God as a contract, if you're seeing God as someone who you cannot ask any questions of, I would like you to consider Jesus today. Consider his grace. Consider that he comes to us just like the angel came to this teenager in Galilee with an announcement. Announcement is, you are favored. God is with you. Christ has come to save you. And come to him and embrace him.